You may remain standing as we read the scripture for our message today. We are studying through the book of James. The book of James was written by the brother of our Lord, James, who was probably the president or the bishop of the church at Jerusalem there in that early days of the church. And uh, James was a fiery preacher. And if you don't think he was a fiery preacher, you listen to the words of this epistle. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of this message comes there from that verse 6 where it says, But, but he gives more grace. We believe that salvation is all of grace. It is the grant, the bestowal of a sovereign, righteous, holy God upon an undeserving, unworthy, sinful people out of the sheer greatness of his love, his mercy, for his people. This passage is about repentance. James is calling God's people to repent. And our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, begins its chapter on repentance by saying, repentance to life is an evangelical Grace. What does evangelical grace mean? Well, turn over to the catechism and it says, repentance to life is a saving grace. In other words, God's grace extends to repentance. 
We know and are comfortable with the notion that God grants us the capacity to believe by showing us Christ in all of his perfections and enabling us to see him and to embrace him and to follow him. We know that faith is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. But did you know that repentance is a gift of God? Paul says in 2 Timothy, God would grant repentance. Repentance is a grace. And even though we are in our sinful condition and woe, does James describe that sinful condition? Though we're in that sinful condition, God has yet more grace. And that is the gift he gives us the free bestowal of repentance. And we need not look to the vast amount of literature there is in the scripture with respect to repentance. The phrase that's used over and over by all the prophets of Israel is turn ye, turn ye, turn around, reverse course, go from straying from me to returning to me. And that word is used over and over. Return, the Lord says to me. Here James describes it as drawing near to God. When John the Baptist came, as the last of the great prophets, he preached the same thing that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets before him had preached. He preached repentance. And when Jesus began his ministry, the very first sermons had a theme and it was the theme of repentance. To change your mind, to change your pattern, to change your direction. And that's what James is calling on us all to do here. And he does it with a richness of language that is just absolutely incredible. He starts off with the language of war. Battles, quarrels, and strifes. And the commentators say, well, the language here is so graphic that it was obviously being metaphorical. And I suppose so, because the actual word that's used for quarrel is the word we get our word polemics. It means to argue a point and to press a point and to stay with it and to, and to quarrel about it, as it were. And this is what James is talking about. He's talking about we are always in a quarrelsome syndrome. And the reason is seen there in that very first verse. He says, there's quarrels among you because there are passions within you. That's our problem. The reason we have difficulty with others, with quarrels and differences and, and, and poor relationships is because there's a struggle and there's something going on inside of us. Some of the worst quarrels and fights I've ever been in in my life, I've discovered later that that person I was fighting with had a problem, a real issue. And then at times I've discovered that I had the problem, that I was the one that was hurting and angry and upset. And yet it worked its way out with a bad relationship with someone. The quarrels among us is because there's something going on among us. And what is it? And we don't have time to spend on it, but he hits four of the Ten Commandments right here and tells you how you've broken them. First of all, he calls us 
murderers. Verse 2. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt do no murder. We are murderers in our hearts and in our spirit when we're in that particular condition. It's worse than that. You covet and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. We break the Ten Commandments, the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. You do not have because you do not, you covet and you cannot obtain. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. The misapplication of God's resources. Theft. Thou shalt not steal. He keeps going. He doesn't give us any wiggle room. Verse 4, you adulterous people. We are breakers of that commandment as well. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Do you see yourself as a commandment breaker? Or have you somehow rationalized that you've never done any of that stuff at all? Now, you're not perfect, you'll say to yourself, but I've never murdered, I've never committed adultery, I've never stolen anything of any significance. That's a deception in the cloud upon your soul that I hope that the light of the gospel will shine through and dispel this morning. And you'll see yourself as a covenant breaker, a commandment breaker, one who indeed fits the description that is here. Because there's always this war. There's, this is the language here of commandment keeping. This is the covenant language of the prophets. And just like the prophets, he uses that term, you adulterous generation. The people were accused of that in Hosea's day. Jesus called his generation an adulterous generation. And it's not just in the marriage between a man and a woman, in fidelity to the marriage, but it's in spiritual adultery. In other words, there is the devotion that belongs to God. The Lord thy God and Him only shall thy serve. And then there is the world, the worldly system, the worldly attitudes. And these are posited against one another here and arrayed as enemies. This is the language of warfare. On one side we have the phalanx of the world. On the other side we have the fortress of the Lord. And whoever friendship with the world is enmity with God, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Have you ever thought of it in those vivid terms? That just to love the world and to love the things of the world, to love the lifestyle, to love the viewpoint, to love the participation and the values of this world is to make yourself an enemy of God. John says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if someone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. I'm afraid you have two poles. I'm afraid that we set before you two positions. We have two choices. God are the world. Where is your heart for the most part? 
for most of the time, for most of your capacity, for most of your money, for most of your, your affection? Is it in the camp of the world? Or is it in the fold of the Father? Beautiful statement here in verse 5. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He says that the scripture says this. And you can search your Bible and you will not find that quotation in it. Because that's not a direct quotation from any place. That's just the whole summary of what it is. Jealousy. God tells his people in, in ancient Israel that I'm a jealous God. I will not tolerate false religion. I will not tolerate false Worship. I will not tolerate you going to other gods and going to other lifestyles other than that which I have laid out for you. And he has given his spirit to his people. The great covenant promise of Jeremiah was that I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, remember? And so he says, do you think that's in vain or it's no purpose that, that God cares enough about us to place his spirit within us and to cause us to walk in statutes. And that's exactly what the grace of God is. The grace of God comes to us by God bestowing upon us by regeneration, the spirit of God himself, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us by new birth. We're born of the spirit, we're born from above and now we can repent. Now we have the capacity because we now have the Spirit of God within us, giving us this grant. He gives more grace. When I saw that title and that Chad had selected for the sermon this morning, I just kept saying, I think I can't do better than just stand up and say over and over and over, nothing but the title. Let's make it a banner, let's make it a slogan. But here's the contrast to all of that sinfulness and that wretchedness and that defilement that's in our lives. God gives us grace, grace. And here he spells it out. He said, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And this humility here is the humility of repentance. It's humbling yourself before God in his righteousness and his law. And so he calls upon us in verse seven. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Now this means not uh, merely to, to give up, but it means to put ourselves under God's authority. In other words, enlist in his service and march according to his orders. It has to do with God's authority over us. Instead of our own will and our own way, we submit to God. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is the language of the fortress. Standing firm against Satan, standing firm against the world, standing firm against sin and unrighteousness. This is not a passive thing altogether. It is something that is done in the empowerment of the Spirit of God that's been put within us. Resisting, holding out against the enemy. And the enemy, of course, is Satan. We've rehearsed that many times in this pulpit. The world, the flesh, and the devil are the enemies of the soul. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now we get into the 
we've seen the military language and now we're into the, and we've seen the prophetic language of the adulterous generation. Now we're into the priestly language, the language of the sanctuary, the language of the, of the Old Testament priesthood. Drawing near to God is to come to Him in prayer and come to Him in supplication and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a parallelism here. That could have come straight out of the book of Proverbs. It didn't, but it could have. I'll tell you where it does come. We'll see in just a moment. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Your hands, the exterior. Clean up the exterior. Get the acts right. But the important thing is a purification of heart, the interior. Get your heart right. Purification and cleansing. And then he calls upon the people to be repentant. This is the language of the sackcloth and ashes of the Old Testament. This is the language of repentance and mourning. Be wretched and mourn and weep. We see this when David sinned. We see this when Job was in his predicament. We see this over and over when the prophets come. They even had a bit of a ceremony with ashes and sackcloth and rending of the garments. and all. We don't have to go through all that exterior um, ritual. But boy, the heart had better be there. Our hearts need to be contrite and humble and remorseful and deeply regretful. Not just that we've sinned, but that we are now in fact sinners. We didn't do such a thing, but we're the kind of person that would do such a thing and did do such a thing and how we regret it and how we want to turn. And, and this is the language of change. He's calling them to, to cleanse and to purify and to be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning. Laughter in the scripture has a broad range of meanings, but one of the things laughter is, is has to do with frivolity and shallowness. The fool laughs, giggles, and takes things lightly. And do not take your sins lightly. God will not tolerate your sins. They must be taken care of one way or another. God's going to punish your sins, every last one of them, either in Christ on the cross or in you in all eternity. And so he tells him here, he said, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Listen to the same identical gospel message preached by David in Psalm 24. Just an inch or two in your Bible away from the 23rd Psalm. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? In other words, who's going to go to heaven? Who's going to be with the Lord through all eternity? Who's going to enjoy the rewards of a blessing for all eternity? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's all James is telling us to do is to get ready to ascend to the holy hill. That's what he says when he says, if you're humble, then God will exalt you. He will bring you to the holy hill. He will bring you to heaven. He will bring you to his abode. And then that next verse there says, 
you will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. That's Christ. That's another place Christ appears. He is the righteousness, capital R, the righteousness of God. And you will receive, that's a blessing, that's gift. He giveth more grace. He gives us Christ and salvation in Christ. He gives more grace. 